for joining me for the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howie Jacobson. Today's conversation, I hope, will make you smile a lot, because that's what it did for me. My guest is Dory Clark, who's a big deal. She's a New York Times bestselling author. She's a Broadway producer, stand-up comic, professor of, at the business school at Duke University. And I've been sort of admiring her a little bit from afar. We're in this uh, a networking group together, but, you know, she's one of the the big stars of the group, and she was very gracious when I asked her to be on the podcast, and she couldn't have been more gracious in the conversation. It, it, it wasn't even an interview. It was just two people talking to each other back and forth. She was asking me as many questions as I was asking her. She drew me out on a lot of topics, and I just feel like you are going to get to witness me making a really special friend. And there's a lot of content, but basically the pleasure is in the connection and the the responsiveness one to the other. So I hope you have as much fun listening as I had recording. Dory Clark, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Hey, Howie. So good to be talking with you. Yeah, I feel sorry for everyone who's just tuning in now because we've had so much fun for just before I hit record. That's right. I know we've we've been we've been partying hard, but uh, but I I think I think we can keep up the pace. Yeah, and you know, and you, I've been like following your work for a while, and you you're very buttoned down, like you're very professional. I watched some TED talks and read your book, and I got a sense that you're a funny, you know exuberant person, but, um, you know, it's a, you're firing on all cylinders today. So I'm just, you know, smiling ear to ear. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So there's a ton to talk about. Originally, I was like, okay, well, let's talk about Dory's new book, The Long Game. And so I started reading it and I started, you know, making my notes. And then I, the notes that I have here, and I read it actually like a month and a half ago. So it's the whole thing is not like up in my head right now, but I've got Broadway producer, jazz album, stand-up comedian, graduate degree in theology, grew up in rural North Carolina. And I'm like, I just want to talk about that first. So that's right. You, yeah. Any anywhere you want to go, Howie. So what was what was like how, let's start with growing up in rural North Carolina. Where whereabouts and what was it like? Well, so I grew up in uh in Pinehurst. So, you know, to be mm. fair. A rural is is a slight exaggeration, but it it's extreme small town, North Carolina. Uh, so Pinehurst is best known as a golf resort. So it it's it's much bigger now. It's grown quite a bit uh, since I have left, but it basically was a golf retirement community that I grew up in, which is you know admittedly a weird place to grow up. So I did not uh, like it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and what, what were you doing there? Well, you know, as as is often the case, we are the victims of our parents' best choices. So they thought it would be so great to uh, move to a place where they could golf all the time. So, oh. uh, yeah, they they had been from they're both from Massachusetts and uh, they thought, you know, hey, let's get out of winter. Let's go to this, you know fantabulous golf resort and then they had me when i was uh when they were there so i ended up growing growing up in pinehurst which is not the fate that i would have chosen for myself but you know there you go uh-huh yeah i think my, my kids can um 
empathize because we, you know, we moved down here to Pittsburgh, which is pretty rural. Like we had like, you know, three neighbors within walking distance and they were, you know, teenagers and they did not think, yeah, we're like, oh, look at all this land, how beautiful it is, how, how quiet. And they're like, this is not what we need. Yeah, it's 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 true. You know, it's it's so hard in a family context because every, everybody has a slightly different agenda and uh you uh you can't you can't meet them all, that's for sure. So so what what were you into? Uh you know, obviously not golf. Yeah, you know, I was when I was a kid um I was I was actually really into sports. Um, we were ta- this is one of the things we were talking about your your athleticism. But you know, I play I played all of the sort of local recreational sports. So I did baseball and soccer and basketball. And then when I got a little older, I did volleyball. So that was really fun for me. Um, also, I think in a lot of ways, you hear this sometimes, but I think it's actually true that basically most mostly you kind of grow up if you're lucky to do the same things that you like to do when you were like nine or 10. So I used to like to write a lot. I I would write stories and I was really interested in being a published writer and things like that. So I feel lucky that I've gotten to kind of fulfill that. Um, Now, where, where did you grow up, Howie? I grew up in South Orange, New Jersey. All right. All right. And and what was, what was your, what was your big thing growing up? Um. Well, depends when. Like as a kid, my big thing was just being weird. Awesome. Um, <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> it did. You know, it's it's it serves me well now. But you know, um, I got into um, ultimate frisbee. Oh, really, I, really, I feel really like early. ultimate frisbee. Yeah, I mean that, that you must have been in the earliest wave of that because I feel like. I mean, things were very slow coming to Pinehurst, but it was definitely not at Pinehurst when when I was a kid. So, so yeah, that's that's pretty that's pretty cool. You were like on the on the bleeding edge of the frisbee world. Well, you know, it didn't feel like it. It's like you know, but now, like, um, I think back twenty years or thirty years to like no, nineteen ninety seems pretty recent. But like when I was started playing ultimate frisbee, it was 1977. The sport was not 10 years old, but I didn't know that. It was just like, you know, it exists. And so I really was, because it was invented in my high school, you know, oh my God, in 68, really? 69. Then I was playing seven, eight years later. That's amazing. Um, so yeah, I guess, you know, I kind of was. That's, that's super cool. Yeah, it was, uh, and we were the first generation, like there was, you know, it was a hippie sport. We were the first generation that was trying to be athletic about it, right? So now if you, if you go to, you watch people play or go on YouTube and there's professional league, like, you know, it's now an athletic thing. Like in the day, it was, it was sort of, we were transitioning. We were like stage crew. There was like hippie stoners. And then there was like soccer players and we were in the middle. We were like chess club, stage crew, math team. That's awesome. So that, was, that was my thing. Wow. That's, that's a good, that's a good uh, history lesson. I had, I had no idea like where, uh, where or when it was invented. I just knew it was so, a vintage. 
So what I wanted to ask you, when I, when I cut out, I was saying, for me, when I was a kid playing sports, it was very much an identity thing. Like, if I, was, if I didn't win, it was terrible. And, you know, knowing you, the work you do around helping people, like, achieve things, but you also have this edge of soul, like, the, be aware of what you're going for and achieve important things that are meaningful and good and not just you know, like we can coach people just for the sake of success. I'm wondering for you as someone who is really into sports, what was your relationship with winning and losing? You know, it's, it's interesting. Sometimes people sort of assume that I'm a really competitive person. Like, you know, somehow they maybe have a, a frame of like, you know, oh, if you're reasonably successful, you must be very competitive and that's how you get to it or something like that. But I'm, I'm actually not. I mean, you know, like anybody else, winning is nice. Winning is is good. And I enjoy doing that. But I never like beat myself up about it if I didn't win. Mm-hmm. Um, uh-huh. Also, you know, like I really like sports, but also um, I had really bad asthma when I was a kid. And so I, it it was really clear that like the level that I should be aspiring to is like be decent and not embarrassing, you know, not Uh like you're going to be the best. Like it was just so obvious. I was never going to be the best at it. And, and so I was just fine with it. You know, I was really, I was really, you know, fine. Um, I wanted to have a good time. I wanted to win if we could. And if we couldn't, you know, I mean, I actually, I am a, a really big believer in almost sort of a sappy way of the value of youth sports participation. And it makes me so glad, honestly, that I grew up in a time of Title IX. There were still not a lot of girls involved. Like there was like me and one other girl on the soccer team, you know. Now, of course, it's like much, oh, much I just I I just pictured a girl soccer team. No, no, it head. was like it was like me and Christy and a bunch of boys. Uh-huh. Uh, but, uh, and, and yeah, it was a boys basketball team. It was a boys baseball team. Yeah. That, that was what we had. That was it. Um, so yeah. Um, I, but, but I really love just the maxims of it, you know, that like all the stuff that your coaches would tell you, you know, perhaps just because they're like supposed to tell a group of eight-year-olds this, but you know, like maybe as people get older, they don't really believe it, but it's like so wise. It's so true. It's like, you know, you need to learn to be a good loser. Like that's actually how, like, that's the mark of character is like, you know, how do you behave when you don't win? Because you're not always going to win or, you know, like you, you, you hustle as hard as you can, but if, if it doesn't work, you know, you don't beat yourself up about it. Like you just know, okay, I did as well as I could. I feel proud of that. Good. You know, I, I think that actually some, some of the most powerful lessons for me in, in life and in also in business life are just about the ethics of how you comport yourself with other people based on these, like, you know, kind of funny bromides of, uh, of youth sports. Mm, that's interesting because like the, the thing that made ultimate frisbee different mm. uh, from any other sport was there's was, there's was a, a a clause called spirit of the game which initially was basically if you're not having fun you, you should not be playing like it's not a, an officially legally sanctioned game if people are pissed off at each other or pissed off at themselves and we didn't we've never had referees 
even in the professional league, they have observers and they help mediate the players to decide, was that a foul? Was that, a, you know, a travel? Um, and so the idea that, you know, you're doing it for, for a higher purpose than just the score. Um, I, you know, I wonder, I wonder as, you, as you made your way in the business world and became a, uh, a support to leaders, did you see, like, people who needed to learn that lesson? I mean, certainly there, there are plenty of people that are so, that are so competitive. I mean, we've all seen that, you know, to, to a detrimental ex- extent. You know, there, it could be because they're competitive about things that are just not worth being competitive about. I mean, there's plenty of people like that, right? Like, you know, they've got to be right about, you know, whatever. Like, you know, was it, was it John Cusack or was it Nicolas Cage in that movie? You know, it's like a, a battle to the death. It's like, you know, who gives, who gives a crap? Uh, but, you know, and, and then you have people who are so competitive that even you know, past, past the point of reason, they will, you know, kind of keep going. And then they have people who are so competitive that if it doesn't, if it doesn't work, even through no fault of their own, they will just beat themselves up and feel terrible. And I, you know, all of those things are, um, are bad. (laughs) I, I mean, I think that, um, what, what I, one of the best gifts that I think that youth sports gives is, you know, because the world wants to be gentle with kids, right? Like, like nobody wants to see some eight-year-old feeling terrible about themselves. And so we're gentle in a way that we're often not with adults, but I, I think that, that we need to embrace a little bit more of that. I mean, I, of course I'm all about, you know, going, going hard and getting it done, but it's, also equally true there are exigent circumstances sometimes and we have to you know sort of like with the serenity prayer right you control what you can control and you know feel perfectly responsible within those parameters that's fine you should but if there are things that you cannot control it is a waste of time and energy for you to feel bad about them you can deal with it you can move on but you can't you know, lacerate yourself or flagellate yourself for things that, that you just really had, had no control or influence over. How do you help people who are, who are trapped in the, in those sort of hyper competitive mindsets where anything other than ultimate victory is, is somehow a a self-condemnation? Well, it's not, it's certainly not easy as you might imagine. I mean, I think, I think part of it, one part that you can do is to introduce an alternative narrative because for some folks, they really have never considered that there's an alternative narrative. You know, their, their way of seeing the world is the, the way that the world is. And so when you present an alternative about, you know, oh, well, you know, have you thought of it this way? Because I actually think of it this way. I, I, for a certain percentage, it's like, oh, wait a minute. There's another, there's another way to be. There's another, you know, rational way of thinking about it that a not crazy person would have. And so sometimes <laughs> that can, that can disrupt things in a positive way. But I think the harder part is for a lot of people, they might accept that other people view things differently. They might accept intellectually that there's another way of thinking about things, but then they say, 
well, I have to think about it this way because otherwise I will lose my edge or otherwise Mm. I won't be able to perform because they believe that their hyper competitiveness is their secret sauce that gives them the power to accomplish what they need to do. And if they get rid of that, then they, you know, they are throwing out the, you know, everything and they will be lazy and ineffective basically, which, you know, on the face of it, of course, is, is not correct. You're not going to give somebody an overnight personality transplant where suddenly they become indolent, um, you know, if they've been a hyper-competitive person before, but that's the part that they worry about. And so I think sometimes um, what can be helpful is if they can have somebody to talk to who has been in that situation before, because coming at someone is rarely effective. You often have to sort of come in the side door And one way to come Mm. in the side door is for someone like them to be like, well, you know, I used to think about about it that way, but here's how I think about it now. And, you know, I don't know if it would work for you, but this worked for me. That can perhaps be helpful. But how how do you think about all this, Howie? I don't really know uh, why I'm asking you. Like, I, I, I was thinking about, like, like maybe they're right that there is some edge that they get that they would lose. But I'm thinking about like, um, there've been all these documentaries lately about like incredibly driven people like the, you know, the last dance, Michael Jordan, um, this, the, there's a, um, um, series about, I think an HBO series about the Lakers, um, that has, you know, a central theme is magic Johnson and Larry bird, both like, obsessing about the other one because they were both rookies at the same time and they were played in college and one beat the other. And you can clearly see how it drove them to become better than anybody else. And yet I wonder like, is it worth it? Like, are there, you know, are there, you know, I think of like the word excellence, like everyone wants to be excellent, you know, from Tom Peters in search of excellence to, you know, every company wants to be excellent, but the root, root of it is to excel means to be better than someone else, which has like this inherent competitive thing. I mean, when, you know, this is the first time we really talked, but seeing your spirit around the, the networking group that we're a part of, you, all you do is raise other people up. Like you've got a podcast, you, like, as you say, like you're not competitive in terms of like you want to see the people around you succeed. And that's kind of how the, the life and the career you've created. Um, I'm sure with your skills and talents and personality, you could have done, done it very differently. You could be, you know, a billionaire uh, entrepreneur. And so like, I'm wondering what about, what is there a cost to the, you know, excellence? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. I was recently reading and I, and I loved it. I was totally into it. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger's memoir. Uh, it came out about a decade ago. It's called total recall as it should be clearly. <laughs> and uh, It was, it was so fascinating to hear about how he became a bodybuilding champion. I mean, obviously this is a pretty intense guy in all the different aspects of his life, but one area where it first manifested, you know, sort of his first career success was as a bodybuilder. And he was working out um, a minimum of four hours a day and sometimes up to six hours a day. And I mean, it's, it's extremely impressive in the sense that, you know, just like for most quote unquote normal people, even, even like getting to the gym, like 
two or three times a week <laughs> is a victory. <laughs> and so, you know, he's doing this like six hours a day. This, you know, this obviously not not easy stuff. You know, he's he's pushing himself, he's hurting himself in order to build muscle. And so on one hand, I am so proud of and happy for anyone who really has a goal and has the the you know the 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 guts and the persistence to really go for it. I mean he obviously he maxed it out. You know, he knew what he wanted to do and he did it. And I think that's so commendable. And also it's equally true that looking at it, I'm just like, wow, that, that literally just does not ever appeal to me. I mean, I guess like if the choice is like, whatever, do you want to, you know, be imprisoned or do you want to work out six hours a day? Then I guess I'd pick six hours a day, but it would almost be like a draw. It would just be like so awful. (laughs) Or like I spent a summer when I was in like high school at um, the North Carolina School for the Arts, uh, which it now has a new name, the uh, North Carolina North Carolina College of the Arts. Was that like in Winston Salem? Yeah, it's in Winston Salem. Yeah, yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I was studying classical guitar, and anyway, the people I was not great. I was okay, and I looked at the people who were great. And they were similar to Arnold. They were practicing six hours a day, eight hours a day on their instruments. And I just, I just, you know, it was so clear. It was so completely clear. I'm just like, I am extraordinarily uninterested in being the best. Like if that is, <laughs> if that is what it takes, like that just sounds so freaking boring to me to play whatever the oboe for eight hours a day, like kill me now. No, yeah. no. Uh, so I, I commend the people who do it, but I was extremely clear yeah, that's that's the the path to excellence is that's not my path. Yeah, it's I'm so looking forward to playing this excerpt for my son, who um, he's 22, and when he was in high school, he was a classical guitarist, and he was like he was like the best classical guitarist in town, right? But and he practiced like half an hour a day. You know, he's he had skill and a really good teacher, and half an hour a day was enough. And so then he decided to go to this guitar program in New York at the NYU, a Manus guitar program. And he, he met those people who were playing six, eight hours a day. And again, he's like, like what, what he got was like, I love, you know, he would say, I love music. These people are driven by something other than a love of music at this point. Yes, that's, that's, that's totally right. It's, it's a kind of, it's a kind of monomania that I found unappealing for my personality type. Like in order to be the world's best, you have to be so singularly focused on something as a goal that literally just everything else fades away. And that's, you know, any other hobby, any other pursuit, it's your family, it's your, you know, dating, it's, you know, whatever it's, it's, it's all subsumed under it. I just wasn't interested, but I feel like the bright side is that to your point, Howie, about, you know, your son was practicing half an hour a day and he was the best, you know, in the, in the community, it's actually surprisingly not hard to become one of the best becoming Mm. the best is extremely hard, but becoming one of the best is actually less taxing than you might imagine. And you can actually get pretty far 
by being one of the best. And especially if you build in a niche or you sort of add something to it, some special sauce, some training, some overlap or whatever, you can really carve out a fascinating and distinctive niche for yourself that can be successful without you having to compete against a pool of like millions of people who want to be the best guitarist or the best bodybuilder or what have you. Yeah. And I'm thinking like there's, there's two different 80 twenties going on here, right? One is that there's sort of a winner take all, like it was really important for Google to be slightly better than Alta Vista in 1998. And then they, you know, became the, the, you know, 95, five behemoth from that, that, that slight edge. And we see, you know, if we, if you do 80, 20 analysis on like um, income of athletes, Right. Like the, you know, the top tennis player in the world probably makes, you know, the top three make more money than all the rest on the on the tour. But also there's the 80 20 of like half an hour a day is sort of an 80 20 to like the amount, you know, the eight hours a day you'd have to put in to, you know, to, to play Carnegie Hall. Totally, totally. And what most people don't recognize is even Carnegie Hall. You can rent it. If you have enough money, you can rent that sucker and you can play at Carnegie Hall. Tell us that story. (laughs) Well, I've never rented Carnegie Hall, but actually one of the stories that I tell in the long game from a good friend of mine, my composing partner that I work with um, in uh, on musical theater, which is one of the hats that I wear. She rented Carnegie Hall a number of years ago. And, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's not cheap. She was, she was fundraising and everything. It was, it, it cost like maybe 40 grand, you know, all in with musicians. And, you know, you've got all these unions for like, if you want to flick on the lights, you need a union person to do it and blah, blah, blah. Um, so, so it's, it's not inexpensive for sure, but she was a struggling jazz musician. And by cobbling together grants and donations and stuff, she managed to be able to do it. But I, I think it's, it's really useful to just recognize that because oftentimes again, People seem to think there's one way of getting somewhere. I know you're, you know, sort of making a making a point, but people often think, oh, I'll never get to play Carnegie Hall unless I'm literally the world's best classical guitarist. Well, the answer is, yeah, if you're the world's best classical guitarist, you can play Carnegie Hall, almost certainly. And also, if you can find a clever way to gin up 40 grand, you can also play Carnegie Hall. And as long as you have been practicing a half hour a day for years on end, so you don't embarrass yourself, you'll probably do great. <laughs> yeah. When, what I love about that story is that, you know, Carnegie Hall is not an objective measure. It's a bunch of gatekeepers, right? It's a bunch of people who got together and said, we're going to decide, you know, what's, what's at the top here. And so being able to tweak that a little bit and say, let's, let, let's democratize what used to be an extremely democratic thing. Like in your little town, you'd have some musicians, right? Before, you know, Victrolas. If you wanted music, you had local people. And, you know, like people would learn to play an instrument just so they could, you know, support their community in, in um, you know, entertainment. And if people are bored, we can all get to gather around the piano and sing. That there's there's something really lovely about seeking excellence or seeking accomplishment for the community as opposed to just for yourself. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so the, another thing I wanted to ask you about was divinity school. 
Like, yeah. what, what, led, what led you there? Well, I went to divinity school really for two reasons. One was I was a philosophy major as an undergraduate, and I was very, very interested in existential questions, Howie. So I decided that studying theology would be a good way to continue pursuing that. And then the second reason was I was very interested in politics and the, uh, the sort of cr- Christian right wing was very ascendant in that time period politically, which was relatively new because um, in the 70s, you know, um, 60s, 70s, it, it was it was really like, let's stay out of that. Let's stay out of these kind of worldly issues. And then from mm-hmm. the late 70s onward, there was a big political shift to increase uh, involvement. And I thought that was interesting. And I wanted to understand more about that phenomenon. So I uh, decided that this would be a good way that I could study it. And did you study at a divinity school that was leaning right wing? No, no. I mean, I, I, I was at Harvard Divinity School, which is a pretty, you know, I guess you could say left wing uh, uh-huh. give school. It's, um, you know, most, it, it was interestingly enough, I mean, little known fact, Harvard Divinity School, I mean, Harvard in general, frankly, was was founded to train ministers, uh, Puritan ministers. Uh, and then eventually, you know, a, the Div School per se was founded. And um, everybody sort of reflexively thinks of the Puritans as these like sort of terrible fundamentalist, like hard ass people, um, which, you know, perhaps they were at, in, you know, in their own day, although um, one of the scholars that I studied with, David Hall, actually showed that a lot of the people who, are, who were Puritans, I mean, you know, like anything, there were some people that were super hardcore, but a lot of the, the Puritans, like the only, you know, the only reason they went to church is like so that their kids could be baptized. Um, like they just were not into it at all. They're just like, you know, I mean, just like people today, like, okay, I guess I'll do it, you know, um, which was fascinating because we think, we think of sort of the lot of them as being almost fundamentalist, but, um, but that's not really how it was. But anyway, the Puritan faith actually over the years, I mean, like, where do the Puritans go? There's not a Puritan religion today per se. Um, but actually where it evolved to is the Puritans became two modern, religious denominations, which is the Unitarian Universalists and United Church of Christ, which are basically the two most liberal Protestant Mm. denominations we have. Unitarians pretty much aren't even Christian anymore. Like some of them are, but I mean, the whole premise of Unitarian is that they're not Trinitarian, which means they're a little bit in violation of some central Christian dogma. So it's super fascinating in terms of how we think about what Puritans are or were. So anyway, I was interested in all of that. Uh, I was suddenly thinking about it. Like, you know, I t- until you said that, I totally had that um, prejudice about, you know, Puritans. And yet, I'm so, as a historian, as a history major, I'm suddenly realizing, so we got that from texts in which, you know, Cotton Mather or whoever is is um, excoriating sinners, which means there were sinners. That's right. That's right. Like the regular lay people were just like, oh, I want to sleep <laughs> in, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. What, whatever he said that we're like quaking in was, was because there were people who needed to hear it in his opinion. Totally. Totally. That's, that's great. Uh, so when you were studying religion. What, what, what were you studying? What, what did your personal curriculum look like, Howie? So, um, 
Well, so I grew up, you know, sort of mainstream suburban Jewish, which which was very interesting because it was it was very important to be culturally Jewish and it was kind of embarrassing to believe in God. So, you know, that was all very interesting. Um, then when I, when I went to college, I studied um, history, but in uh, you know, the uh, a religious context, I was looking at the attempts by the um, the Romans to rebuild the Jerusalem temple in the fourth century. And, you know, this was this, this emperor Julian, who is the apostate, who is the, the, the last non-Christian emperor who came in after three or four Christian emperors. And he wanted to bring everything back to the way it was to restore Roman glory, you know, Zeus and Hera and all those folks. And um, what, what, what Jews thought about temple versus synagogue because they'd already had you know they like the temple was destroyed they're really sad about that and they're really glad at the same time because what a pain in the ass to have to have go to jerusalem to have a priestly class to have sacrifices to have no say in the um evolution of your communal faith and now all of a sudden it's totally decentralized and you're having you know sort of direct contact with divinity through you know rabbi means teacher and not it's, it's no it's not hierarchical um so i was looking at the fourth century and thinking god it's really a lot like the modern world like so it was basically like oh like things haven't changed much right and it's also like the protestant reformation all of all of a sudden it's like oh we don't, we can read it ourselves mm-hmm. on our gutenberg bibles oh my god <laughs> yeah right Right. And, and I love that the Gutenberg Bible was 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 funded by by early, you know, typeset pornography. <laughs> yeah. Much like my career, I was. Um, <laughs> <laughs> OK. Yeah, I, I do mean it literally my first job. I was a political reporter at an alternative news weekly, which, you know, I mean, it was extremely high quality journalism, but it was funded by the by the, you know, sort of prostitution and 900 ads in the back of the paper. And, uh, uh-huh. and then I got laid off because Craigslist and the internet, um, removed a need for that. And so, yeah, we, we lost, we lost a lot of great journalism as a, as a result of, uh, porn going online. Oh, wow. Have, have you seen, um, HBO show, uh, Minx? I have not. Oh, do you know about it? No, no. Oh, it's a it's this uh, it's from the late 19 early 1970s. This uh, Vassar grad um, is a, an ardent feminist, wants to start a magazine called Awaken the Matriarchy. She ends up in Los Angeles, where the only one who's willing to fund her magazine is a, uh, a porn publisher. And the way they are going to empower women is by showing pictures of naked men. There we go. Uh, there we go. Uh, <laughs> It's a great show. It's it's uh, it, it it gets at a lot of the complexity and nuance of uh, of you know bedfellows, literal and figurative. That's great. Yeah. So how'd you get into how'd you get into business? I mean, I'm hearing you know Broadway and jazz and divinity and sports. Like what what led you to uh, a career in you know commerce? Oh uh, yeah, yeah the the whole the whole filthy lucre question. Hmm? Yeah, I, ho- I hope I said the word comment, commerce with with enough disdain and. Yeah, that was that was great. That was well 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 done. 
Um, yeah. Well, you know, I I got interested in all of this. I started my own business in 2006, and the immediate antecedent for that was I was a nonprofit executive director. And I had been doing that for two years. I was the executive director of a bicycling advocacy nonprofit, which, you know, sounds pretty much as far from <laughs> the world of business as possible. But um, I decided where was this? it was in Massachusetts. Okay. So I decided I was going to go out on my own. It was actually, it was, it, I mean, ironically, it was such a stressful job. It was such a stressful job because this, this organization was, pretty much entirely riding on me to raise all the money for it. I mean, it was a 30-year-old organization, but they had not done a very good job of creating predictable revenue flows. And the guy who ran the organization before me had basically landed a five-year grant with the government, which expired when he was leaving. And then there was like, no incoming revenue. And so I took the job and it's like, oh God, I have to like raise everything. And so, you know, it's a tiny organization. It wasn't a lot of money to raise, but raising any amount of money when you don't have sort of like a stable set base of funding is incredibly hard. So I, it it was, it was very hard, high stress work. And so I did it for two years, but I decided you know, I, this is very ironic because a lot of people enter consulting or executive coaching from these like super lucrative corporate jobs. And then they're sad and disappointed that they're making less money. For me, my calculus was, wow, literally anything I do, like anything I do up to and including just donating my blood to the Red Cross, I will <laughs> make more money than I am making working at this job. So it's only up from here. So it seemed like zero risk for me to start my own business. So I started consulting. Uh, so when I, um, until I was about 30, I was a school teacher. Oh, and wow. I, at, who did, who did pro- you teach, Howie? I, was, I taught at private schools. Um, I spent many, most of my career at uh, a small Quaker school in central New Jersey, Princeton Friends School. Oh, my gosh. And mostly I was part-time. So, like, I, didn't, I literally didn't know anyone in my life who made more than $25,000 a year. And so when I realized, like, I need more money, I didn't even know, like, who to talk to. Luckily, there was one guy, the assistant head of the school had been in business. And he was sort of, you know, he, this was his second career. He understood. He helped me do some, uh, you know, what color is your parachute sort of exercises. Um, and, you know, he like he explained to me one day, like, the amount of money you make in business is based on the value you provide to that business. And I'm like, writing it down, because that was like a new concept that's that's amazing so when you made your force your first foray after being a school teacher what what was that first thing did you go straight into entrepreneurship or did you have a, a job at a company no neither i um um started working for peter bregman oh so you're working for peter oh wow yep. nice. i was i was his first director of marketing Oh my gosh, that's great. And the, the conversation that preceded my hiring was he said, Hey, do you want to be my director of marketing? And I said, I don't know what marketing is. And he ah. said, Well, we're smart. We'll figure it out. You that's, know, because he, 
1999. He had just landed a huge, his first huge contract. And he, you know, wisely felt like, I can't do this by myself. I need some help. And, um, you know, that was sort of my introduction to the business world. And I was, you know, marketing, um, you know, a boutique consulting company. So the first things I went to, to get to learn about marketing, I went to Barnes and Noble and I bought Sergio Zyman's book on experiential marketing. This was the guy behind the new Coke disaster and Philip Kotler on marketing, which was a bunch of papers he had written, neither, neither of which was remotely helpful to me. And it, it took me two years to understand that like marketing is really about telling people your story in a compelling way that means something to them, which was a thing I would have written down if anyone had told me. That's sensational. I, I love I love it that your first impulse was to market Peter uh, with the, with the principles of the new Coke guy. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, luck- luckily we had we had very little budget, so I wasn't able to blow very much. Well, it sounds like you did, in fact, figure things out. So that's uh, that's awesome. So wh- later, what- later, actually, I think Peter just sort of subsidized my uh, my learning for two years. It took me a long time to really understand. You know, actually, the turning point. I don't know if you remember this book. It was called the Clue Train Manifesto. Uh, yes, that was by one of the one of the early Internet guys. Oh, yes. Which, which one Four was guys. it? David. <laughs> You're I'm Russ, trying to remember which one it was. Weingarten, you know, there, yeah, there's, there was a bunch of them. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And they talked about, like, the, like, business having a voice. Like, what, you know, when I made that little sort of commerce thing. Yeah, like, that's actually Weinberger, how... Weinberger, it was. Weinberger, yes. When I, when I grew up, my, my, my dad was a labor organizer. Mm. And so my first full sentence was probably something like, up with the wages, down with the bosses. So for me to think that business could be a force of good in the world was mind blowing. Yes. Uh, and the Clue Train know, Manifesto helped you see that? Yes. Yes. It talked about like what, what a, a business could have a voice for good. Hmm. And I've come, you know, I'm still bifurcated around that. Like still part of my, my DNA is like, oh, business, money, greedy, capitalism, bad. And there's also a part of me that understands, like, if we're going to get anything done, we better do it with with business and not against business. Yeah, I was reading a fascinating article in The Times recently about um, it was it was sort of this profile of this young woman who had been a Rhodes Scholar. And then she finished her Rhodes Scholarship and then she took a job at Starbucks uh, because she had decided to become a union organizer. So she was getting paid by a union. And then she also had the part-time job at Starbucks so that she could kind of infiltrate and, and lead the unionization effort. Um, but it was, it was sort of, it was written by someone who apparently two decades ago had been a Rhodes Scholar and, you know, was saying like, you know, everybody was sort of in the centrist Clinton Blair sort of thing uh, at that time, but that now uh, a kind of quick back of the envelope pull of the Rhodes Scholars is they're all like super duper you know, hyper progressive, uh, pro labor union, et cetera. So even though the numbers have been dropping very steadily, there was, uh, the thinking that maybe if, if, you know, maybe that this is like an early indicator that if 
the elite is actually, you know, the, these people who are theoretically are going to be inheriting the reins of power in our society are turning toward this, that there might be more of a push in that direction. Um, so it'll be interesting to watch. That's interesting. I saw the headline and I did not read it. If I'd known, if I'd known that was the backstory, I was, I was thinking like, oh, she just couldn't find another job or something. <laughs> right, right. Yet another sad road scholar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what did, what did you like about, you know, consulting, about being in the business world after not? Well, you know, Howie, when I was in college, um, I went to my senior year, I went to career services like everybody does you know, trying to figure out, trying to get some kind of guidance about, geez, what kind of job should I look for? How should I look for a job? You know, it seemed very mysterious. And one of the pieces of advice they had, which is not illogical, was, okay, write down the things you like to do and then think about jobs that involve doing that. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'm in. And so I'm like, you know, making my little list. But basically my list really only had two things on it. and as it happens, those are still the, my two favorite things. Um, my list said, I like to read the newspaper and I like to give people my opinion. So, that was, <laughs> <that's it. laughs> so I, I, I tried for different careers, you know, where I could do this, like being a reporter. Oh, yes, that's good. I can read the newspaper and I can give people my opinion. Um, but, you know, I got laid off. I didn't get to be a, a reporter. Um, but actually being a consultant scratches that itch quite nicely. Your entire job really is giving people your opinion. and They pay you for it. And it's fantastic, you know, being a consultant or being an executive coach. So uh -huh. I, I think it suits my personality quite well. <laughs> when did you know you had something you had an opinion that people would benefit from i always had a high opinion of myself <laughs> so <laughs> i i the question of whether they would pay for it it became a question of how do i convince them to pay for uh -huh. it but i always uh -huh. felt that i had something useful to contribute uh-huh was it based on sort of experience or or just reading the newspaper a lot like, I, I feel like there's something I'm, I've been missing about, like, you know, having a high enough opinion of myself. Like, like the way you said that, I was like, oh, I should. That's another one of those things I should write down. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, by the time I started, I mean, th there were some gaps, to be sure. I mean, I, I, for instance, had never had a job, actually an actual corporate job when I started my consulting career. And of course, now I still haven't, but it kind of doesn't matter because I've advised so many companies and so many people in corporate roles. Like I, I know a lot about it, but at the time I didn't, but the, but yeah, I was able to sort of, I had an eclectic enough background that I knew that there was a lot of random stuff that I could draw from. Mm. And, and, and most people had not had that eclectic of a background. So I'd, I'd been a journalist, I'd been in politics, I'd run a nonprofit, you know, I, you know, all these sort of things. And so between all of them, it gave you a slightly different way of looking at things that could be helpful to people that maybe had only done one of those things or maybe had done none of them. See, I, I love how you crafted a positive narrative from that. Cause I've had, I was a school teacher. I used to deliver singing telegrams. I did. I was a juggler and a clown for children's parties. Um, I was a musician and I hid all that when I tried to like be a grown up. Like that was all 
Um, I used I used to direct musical theater at, at for for middle school. Like the most fun guy at the party, Howie. Jeez, yeah, you can't, I, you can't I was, be hiding that light under the bushel, man. Yeah, but like it, it did not occur to me that those were were strengths that they they seemed like you know sort of the gaps on your resume that you don't talk about. I, and I so I love how you looked at, at them and said this eclectic gathering of of experiences and talents is valuable. Thank you. Um, So let's talk a little bit about um, the long game. And then I saw you just, you've just released a a TEDx talk that um, I I love that it was a TEDx talk about sort of um, using your time wisely. And it was only eight minutes long, like half, half the length of a normal TEDx. It felt very good. Um, That's right. You gotta, but, you gotta, you gotta walk the talk on that one, man. <laughs> Let's talk about the long game. Um, so there's, you know, there's a lot of. Well, first of all, why'd you write it? What's it about? Well, thank you. So the long game is, you know, it's the subtitle is how to be a long-term thinker in a short-term world, and basically it is it is a book about how we can essentially kind of rebalance our, our mental portfolio, because so many of us, certainly during the pandemic, we were kind of forced into short-term thinking, but even before that, you know, there's, there was just this constant push toward comparing ourselves to others, to being stressed out that like things aren't happening fast enough. I need them to, you know, go faster, go bigger, go better. And uh, people were kind of driving themselves crazy. And so I wanted to write a book that hopefully would help contextualize that a little bit better for people and help them um, feel feel better making the smarter long-term choices that might not necessarily show uh, show up as being a great choice in the near term, uh, which of course deters a lot of people, but might in fact be the much better choice in terms of the ultimate outcome that you want to get. Mm. So I'm I'm seeing a little bit of a of a distinction in the book and then in the TED talk around like when you just said like the, for the book it was this choice may not seem strategic in the moment but it's strategic long term whereas in the TED talk you're really hitting upon something much more sort of psychological like this doesn't like taking my time just doesn't feel good it just you know the the, the engine is you know like. I've got to have my foot on the gas. Otherwise, like physiologically and psychologically, I'm uneasy. Uh, I wonder how those how those two, you know, come together in your mind. Yeah, yeah. Well, absolutely. I mean, the the TEDx talk that I, that I did, which I was lucky enough to get picked up on the TED.com channel, uh, is called The Real Reason You Feel So Busy and What to Do About It. And what I dive into, this is, this is kind of um, a deep dive into a little portion of what I talk about in the long game is that, you know, we all know the, you know, we all know the obvious reasons that we feel busy. Um, You know, yes, we have too many meetings. Yes, we have too many emails. You know, this is, this is all true. It's not like people are exaggerating that, but it is also true that for many people, there are kind of hidden reasons that are impacting why they feel busy, why, why they are making the choice to be so busy, because that, that often is a thing. We are, we are choosing how we are filling our calendars. And so um, that's a little harder to excavate because these are emotionally prickly 
reasons. Uh, and that involves things like needing to, um, to feel better about ourselves that, um, there's been interesting studies that have shown that, um, you know, by, uh, Sylvia Belletz of Columbia university talking about the fact that busyness and status have gotten really tightly interwound in contemporary American society. And so the busier you are, the, the more popular you must be, the more in demand you must be. And so it's often a balm to our ego to be busy. Yeah, I love that part about the talk where you're, it's, it's basically status posturing. Yes. Right? Like it's, it's, it's based, we, like we think it's about achievement and, you know, achievement is like a, you know, a basic human drive, whether it's sort of meaning or, but really it's about approval. It's about other people looking at you and saying, oh, aren't you important? Aren't you high status? Totally. Um. So the, um, in terms of like the, the long game, the like, so, you know, we have to recognize that there's a cost to, to this moment, but it's, but you're telling people like the cost is in the future. So like a lot of the coaching I, I've done, I did before I had, and I'm still doing before getting into, back into the corporate stuff, it was helping people with health. And so it was very easy. Like people, I didn't have to coax it out of people like what happens if you keep doing the what you're doing now like they know they can they're, they're already 100 pounds overweight they know they're on diabetes meds they know their mom died of of colon cancer and they can see even though even though it's difficult to do anything in the moment differently they can see where they're going how do you talk to people about the long game when it's it's not even you know by definition it's the long game. If people if you hold up the, the book again for people who are going to watch this on YouTube, there's a lot of O's on the so like, many so many O's, right? The law, like you, it's hard even to connect this moment with with the future. How do you help people get that perspective? Yeah, well, I think Howie that one of the the things that we just have to really recognize is there are there are goals that most people have that just literally can't no matter no matter how badly you want them no matter how good you are they can't be accomplished uh very quickly you know it's uh you know it, it's it's like farming right like no matter no matter how badly you want the crop it needs to be in the ground for six months or however long it needs to be in the ground in order to, to come up. You cannot speed that, that process up. And so, you know, it, while it's true that, you know, yes, there are some things you can make happen faster. A lot of the good stuff doesn't happen faster. And we, we have to recognize that and also say, all right, if this is important enough to us, and, and this could be, you know, something like, like raising kids, right? Like you're not going to speed that up. That takes as long as it takes, right? But, but if you claim, for instance, that you want to have a happy family, you want to be an involved mom or dad or whatever, um, then this is a process that, that needs to be handled over time. And, and so as a, as a result of that, it's also true that the, the longer a horizon stretches, the, the more interferes with it, <laughs> you know, hmm. like, like if there, if there's a thing and it's like, oh, I'm going to do this tomorrow. I mean, it's true that like some crazy thing could come up, but usually not like, usually you can do the thing that you planned tomorrow. Right. 
But if you say, oh, well, this is a 20-year process and it's going to go this way and this way and this way and this way. Well, there are so many variables in between now and then. Statistically, it's probably not going to go exactly the way you're imagining. There's going to be a lot of detours. There's going to be a lot of doubling back. Things are going to get weird and frustrating and whatever. And so you need to have a huge amount of resilience built in and you know, be willing and able to kind of get back on the horse and find a different way, whether it's about building a good relationship with kids or whether it's about, oh, I'm going to become the CEO or I'm going to build a startup that's going to IPO or whatever your goal is. And so it's really understanding the duration of that process and being willing to have the, uh, the perseverance to work towards it. Um, speaking of time and managing time and all these things, just as an FYI, I have a call at 4.15, so I, I do have a hard stop relatively soon. Okay, well, let's, let's, let's manage it elegantly and gracefully so I don't have to do a quick goodbye. Um, where can people find, find you and find out more about you and uh, stay in, in contact? Well, thank you so much, Howie. I appreciate it. Um, the, the, the central hub of operations is doryclark.com. And for folks who especially are interested in long-term thinking and strategic thinking, I have a free resource, which is the, the long game strategic thinking self-assessment and folks can download that for free. It's basically a, um, a self-assessment toolkit to help you think through how to be more strategic in your own life and career goals. And folks can get it at doryclark.com slash the long game. The long game. And Dory is D-O-R-I-E. Yes. And Clark has no E at the end. C-L-A-R-K. That's right. That's right. Only room for one E. And and Dory took it. (laughs) Well, Dory, thank you so much. I'm I'm so glad we got this to work. I'm so glad that uh, the the early um, audiovisual glitches got worked out. I've got to say, you know, I started this podcast like, nine years ago and the purpose in my mind at that point was just to have cool conversations with fun people and talk about the long game like there have been moments where I'm like well I got to be really strategic and I got to get someone who's going to grow my audience and someone who's going to cover this topic and I've really come back to that original thing like just who can I have fun conversations with and this is one of those that I had no idea where it was going to go I know you had a book I knew I wanted to talk about it but I'm just so glad that we got this chance to connect and I'm just really grateful for, for you being in the world. Oh my goodness. Howie, it's great to talk with you and thank you so much. It's really a pleasure. All right. Well, we'll connect again. I might see you in Nashville in August and uh, go, go, go get your 415. Thank you, my man. Take care. Okay. You too. Bye. All right. You can check out the show notes with links to Dory's Ted talk, her latest book, her website, at plantyourself.com slash 522. 522 episodes. Man, this was a fun one, wasn't it? Um, It reminds me why I started doing the podcast in the first place, which was to have conversations like this, to have an excuse to meet people and talk to them in depth uh, and get to know them and uh, enrich my life and hopefully enrich theirs a little bit. And you know, when I started doing it, nobody was listening. Now lots of people are listening. So I hope you feel included as well. So let's talk about garden news. God, we are under bushels of squash. I cannot, if I ate nothing but squash all day and at uh, like 250 calories a pound, that would be about, you know, 10, 10 to 12 pounds of squash just to uh, to meet my basal metabolic rate. 
Um, I still would not be able to keep up with the garden. We're also getting about a gallon of blueberries a day. And uh, for the first time, Mia harvested some basil and made some homemade pesto yesterday. So we're starting to feel the abundant caress of summer uh, on our dining room table. And in movement news, I went running two days um, in a three. Actually, two days out of three. I went on Saturday morning uh, up in Maryland. We went to the uh, Midnight Oil concert, their last U.S. concert ever, if they are to be believed. It was incredible. If you're in Europe and you have a chance to see uh, Midnight Oil, I think it's just MidnightOil.com and probably on you know the, the the Twitters and Instagrams, Midnight Oil Band. Um, go go see them. They're a fantastic band. They've been uh, making noise uh, in favor of, you know, planetary healing and uh, social justice since the 1970s, and they haven't slowed down a single beat. Uh, but anyway, so I was up in uh, D.C., went for a run there, and my foot didn't hurt too bad. So and then... Um, Monday and Tuesday back here, I went for over six miles. Monday, I did uh, hill sprints. And Tuesday, just went out for a slow jog, which is good because I met uh, my buddies, Gary and uh, his dog, Maggie. And we just did a, a leisurely six-mile jog and chat. And this morning, my foot was hurting a little bit. So I got back on the bike for about 47, 48 minutes. Um, still making my way through season two of Hacks on the Airdyne bicycle. Uh, one of the things I learned from a guest, Katie Milkman, um, who wrote a book called How to Change, was about bundling. So I do not let myself watch Hacks, this fantastic uh, comedy, except when I'm sweating on the bike. And so um, I've got about two and a half weeks now until Denver Nationals, and I'm not quite in shape yet. I don't know if I'll get there. But I'm pretty sure I'll be able to uh, to at least run a little bit. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song "Sabali Don," the dance of peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatterley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Kelly Cameron, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franz, Jeanette Benham, Gila Serk, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Val Lineman, Nick Harper, Bandana Chawley, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Sharon Hirschman, Linda Ayad, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Anne Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Peter W. Evans, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Emily Iconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Picorni, Stephen Lenin, Patty Martino, Mike and Donna Kartz, Deanne Bishop, Billbury Elf, Marjorie Lewis, Trisha Adams, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarit Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Paranganchi. Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Allison Corbett, 
Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, Sarah Johnson, Catherine Floyd, for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends. Thank you.